Um, probably not as well as I would hope to have ended it last week. Uh, you have to forgive me again as the joke continues. I'm typically long-winded because there's a lot going on in here, and just I'm not I, I'm I'm learning to try to communicate that better. Um, but what the hope is going forward is a continuation of this series, but in the evenings, which for everyone will begin on Wednesday evenings uh, next week. Not this Wednesday, because we're doing Sunday evening this week. But the following Wednesday, we will have our first Wednesday evening service. No Sunday evening service this coming Sunday. That's, I'll make sure we all understand that uh, Sunday morning. Uh, but the, the goal is then to really get into the nitty-gritty of how we seek to bring glory to God in the church, as a local church. Um, and you'll see how we're going to pick up on that, at where we left off last Sunday. Um, well, I'll just tell you, where we left off last Sunday, and I'll, I'll kind of lay out the, the fundamentals here. The purpose of the church, we begin with the purpose of the church, and that is simply worship number one, and number two, to be a source from which salvation is obtained. Now, if you notice, I always look somewhere because I want to say that correctly, because I want you to understand it's the source from which salvation is to be obtained, as in where Christ is. Salvation isn't in the church per se, but it's in the church as long as Christ is in the church. And so I want to make sure that I say that right, because one of the large problems during the Protestant Reformation was that the, the Roman Catholic Church would say that there's no salvation outside of the church. And that's true to some degree, but the way that they were doing church, they meant if you fall outside the bounds of our guidelines, you're outside of the potential of redemption. But what the true sense of that means is, is that as long as Christ is present, his glory is present, because here's the thing, his word is present and his people are present, right? Then, then worship takes place and the, the source from which salvation is to be obtained will continue. So that's the purpose of the church. But then, so, and I've already just, I just touched on the marks of a true church, which is, they're the, the ways that which we fulfill the purpose, which is the right preaching of the word and the right practice of the ordinance, ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And I mentioned last Sunday morning that the ordinances are a visible picture of the word, right? They're making known before us that which is true in God's word. So that's the, the purpose is worship and to be the source the marks of the church are the practical, fundamental ways that which we achieve that purpose, preaching and the ordinances rightly. But then the third thing where, again, this is sort of stair-stepping or um, what are those dolls called? Nesting dolls, Nesting dolls right. Um, the next thing, so how do we make sure that we are doing right preaching and right ordinances? Well, this is where we get into the nitty-gritty, and I touched on it last week, um, and I, th here's what I want to tell you. 
So this is the business of the church. These two things. Guarding or keeping right doctrine and participating in right discipline. Now basically what I just said was another way of saying right preaching and and the right practice of ordinances. Because apart from us guarding the gospel and right healthy doctrine, we're going to lose the right preaching. If we're if we're not performing the ordinances as they're given to us in their word, then we're not going to be actually um, disciplining the congregation as necessary. And I, <laughs> when I say discipline, I mean that in the most loving sense, in the same way that you would discipline your children, right? Um, so as as the local body, the main business, the main thing that we drive for is to guard the guard the the gospel, true doctrine, and I don't even have to say discipline every time, say every time, but discipleship. Because what we're concerned with is not just the right preaching, but then the preserving of one another. And that's done through discipleship or discipline. It's really the same thing. It's really the same thing. And that that when we practice the ordinances correctly, meaning as Baptists, number one, we baptize those who have made a profession of faith, um, and we we believe that their profession is um, is legitimate, right? Because if we just baptized everybody and said, "Come on in," then what we we would be endangering we would be endangering we would be putting in danger our what we're called to do, and that's to preach the word and to and to disciple one another, right? And so, uh, and then the Lord's Supper is the same way. That's why we we fence it off to some degree, right? We say this is for this is for those who are in Christ only. We do that again and sort of. Well, we'll get there. This is uh, this is for those who are in right relationship with Christ. Now, hear me. I'm going to make this point. That doesn't mean that you're not in sin. And nobody that comes to this table isn't in sin to some degree. But if you're in unrepentant sin, that's another thing. And we'll come to that in a minute. Um, That was sort of where we were going last week and where we're going to pick up this week. Uh, And here's the word for for the evening. This is the discussion that we're going to have. How do we do that? How does Ozark's Bible Church do that? Well, this is where we get into the topic of church polity. P-O-L-I-T-Y. Polity just means governance or governing, okay? Um, And you think churches have nothing to do with governing. Well, if, if there is authority within an organization or a group of people... There is governing taking place. There is authority that's being handed down which creates standards, operations, policies, whatever the case may be. Okay. From basically the beginning of church history, there has been some sort of polity practiced. Okay. So 
maybe let me make us maybe make this a little bit clear. When I say church polity, governed might not be the best word to communicate it, but here's the, here here here's a couple other ways to say it. Who oversees and directs the affairs of the church? Because ultimately, what we're trying to oversee and direct is the right teaching of the words and the right practice of the ordinances, discipleship. Okay, who oversees and directs that? Or maybe another, a simpler way: How does the local church make decisions in regard to those things they're called to do? Who's responsible? Who's got the authority? That church polity answers that question. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm about to give you what. There's three main options throughout history. I'm going to explain all three. But before then, do you need any clarification on the definition? Okay. Um, here, here are your examples of polity throughout history. Um, the first one, Episcopalian. Okay, Episcopalian. Now let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to have a few places in 1 Timothy where we're going to see language that communicates all three of these options, I guess. First, and it's and it's very helpful that um, Brother Dan's been going through Titus, the, the qualifications for an overseer, elder, pastor, and also for deacon. Um, so the first option, the first, and this is really the, well, you'll see. Episcopalian, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to say the word, the Greek word that's used there to describe this when we get there. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of Episcopalia, which, as everybody's Bible say overseer or does it say bishop? Does anybody say bishop? We got a bishop back here. Okay, so the KJV and the NK and the New King James says bishop. Huh? Overseer. Okay, so it's either translated bishop or overseer typically. Um, Episcopalian, with that understanding, that word there as bishop, it, the function or the structure of an Episcopalian polity is that there is one ruler. One person in charge over many churches. Okay? Now, you've got, it's in, you already hear the word bishop, you've probably got something in mind. One person that rules, examples, the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, Anglicans. Uh, who's, the, who's the bishop, the one ruler of the Roman Catholic Church? The Pope. What about the Church of England? That's a little bit more complicated because there's, there's kind of two. Huh? Now say it. I said the queen. No, no, you're right. Well, now it's the king. Well, yeah. But you're right. The Church of England we're, oddly has two. So you've got a non-clerical bishop in King Charles. But then you have the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury which is the top clerical bishop who is in charge or rules over all the dioceses or, or whatever they're called um, throughout the Church of England. Now, those are the two obvious ones. There are a couple other not-so-obvious ones that have made themselves known in the last, well, in, in, in modernity. 
Um, we have a lot of what's called multi-site churches these days. And so let's say Ozarks Bible Church decides to start a church in Ash Flat. Okay? And this is typically how it usually works. So we start a church in Ash Flat. We might have what's called like a campus pastor, but we decide that we want we want me, the pastor here, to be the overseer, the bishop of that church as well. Now, this doesn't really work because we don't have that structure here. But the point being is that there is a pastor or senior pastor who basically rules multiple congregations, even, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but even in a single church operation, you can have an Episcopalian order. If I said, as your pastor, this is the way it goes, that's Episcopalian rule. There's one person over, whether it's one church or a hundred, okay? It's one person rule, which are typically called bishops. And the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. He's just top bishop, okay? So that's the first one. Then the second one is Presbyterian. Um, Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, do not neglect the gift you have. So this is Paul to Timothy, who is an elder or an overseer. Timothy, do not uh, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, which the council of elders or the presbyteron laid their hands on you. So KJV, does it say the presbytery? Elders. Maybe there was another spot. But that word, that what that word, oh, let's see. 517. That should say elders too. But what that word is, is uh, presbyteros. Presbyteros. So the Presbyterian polity isn't one man rule, but it's a group of elders, a group of overseers. So you would, so as he said here in Second or First Timothy chapter four, you, uh, where did it go? Uh, the the presbytery laid their hands on you. A group of qualified elders in First Timothy chapter three, a group of those men laid hands on Timothy. Okay, that's the Presbyterian polity. Not one pope, not one bishop, but a multitude of elder qualified, overseer overseer qualified, 1 Timothy chapter 3, men who give oversight over a church. Okay, So let's say you had three bishops in one congregation. They rule together. That's usually called elder rule. Whereas the other one is called Bishop Rule. Um, if you've ever been in a Presbyterian denomination like the PCA, PCUSA, it actually stacks authority. Each local church has Elder Rule and then 
sort of the local area. There's a presbytery over all the local Presbyterian churches in that area. And then there's an overarching one that's called the General Assembly. And there are men who rule over all of the, and it just kind of falls down step by step by step. Questions thus far? So now we get to the third option. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. First Timothy? Yeah. This is the passage we looked at last week. If I delay, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church or the uh, congregation, the assembled saints of the living God. This, the third one, is congregationalism or congregational. Uh, it is the word all throughout the New Testament is typically translated church, but you could literally translate it congregation as well. Um, the rule within a congregational church isn't one person. It's not, a, it's not one elder, one bishop. It's not a group of qualified elders or bishops but it is the collective members of that congregation which carry the final earthly rule and authority within that local assembly. It's a combination of all the members. That includes elder, bishop, or pastor. They, they all join in in the collective uh, rule or authority of that church. Now, we have to understand, we give all these three credit. We, see, we say bishop ruled, we, see, we say elder rule, and we say congregational rule, but all true churches are going to understand that that authority that those three systems run under, a good church, a true church says that that authority is actually God and handed down. Okay, so let's make sure we're not – you could make arguments about Rome and all these other things, but we want to understand – the, um, the Methodist church used to run sort of the Episcopalian – uh, model the Episcopalian Church of in the, in America runs off that model, um, but anyway, so the third congregational no there's no there's no person or group of persons that are qualified elders that rule or deacons, but ultimately it is the members of that local assembly who carry that authority. Now. Historically, we don't have time to understand how all of all of the um, how all of this unfolded initially. That would be a great thing to do one day. Um, but when you get to the 1500s, okay, all you have is Episcopalian. That's it. There's no other churches operating outside of that, because all you have in the 1500s is the Church of Rome and the Eastern Orthodox. That's it, and they're all they're all Episcopalian. Um, again, it didn't. It, it's it's quite a process to understand how they got to that point. But then you get to the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, and these men are protesting the abuse of that system, that order, and so. Not only are they protesting that, but they're getting the word of God to, to people. So at this time in the 1500s, the Bible is really only in Latin. That's really it. 
and the only people who have have Latin translations are the bishops, are the people or who are in positions in Rome. That's it. And so you don't have you really even when um, you now I will I won't go there. So then after the Protest- during and after the Protestant Reformation, when people get their hands on the originals, the Greek and the Hebrews, and they start studying for themselves, like the Luthers and the Zwinglies and the Calvins and all these, and they are they're removing themselves from the Roman church and they're studying the scriptures, they're saying, I'm not really seeing this Episcopalian model in the scriptures. And so they start asking themselves, based off their study, how should we... Because they're making churches outside of Rome. And what does Rome say? There's no church or salvation outside of Rome. So they've got to, from their study of the scriptures, they've got to figure out, well, then what are we? What is a church? How should we function? Which, how, that, you know, which where we get the marks of a true church, the right preaching, and the right practice of ordinances. So this is basically what happens is... Even when the, the Church of England stayed Episcopalian, but then you had a big shift towards Presbyterianism, that was sort of the first reaction. But then after that first reaction, the, the, the sort of Reformation continued to press, and people were saying, no, 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 when I look at Scripture, I see that the authority is within the congregation. Um, and this is where I'm going to finish tonight, which, hey... We still got plenty of time, um, <laughs> but let me say this too. Let me say this too. What I've just laid out these three historical forms of polity. Now, you, a couple things. You can walk down a street, walk in a church, and find someone probably maybe not operating and saying that we're this, we're this, or we're that. Or they might say, this is how we are, and we don't know what it's called. But there, what, if you think about our churches in our area, the majority of them call themselves congregationalist, congregationalisms. But a lot of them operate out of pastor rule. Not all, but a very, a very large bunch of them where there is the form of congregationalism. But it really is sort of a faux setup, um, and so you can re- and there's all you can. You've got churches. Well, I'm a, okay, I th- you could just find all the different combinations. But here's what I want to say: church polity doesn't condemn a church per se. Okay, we're not going to look. At a Presbyterian church and say, you're not a church because of how you are set up with your governance. We want to know, are they preaching the gospel and are they practicing the ordinances rightly? That's the first, That's what we want to know. Um, but I'm convinced that the best way to do those two things is through congregationalism. And that's where I want to lead us, right? Because any, any church, any polity could make an argument based off the scriptures – I just think congregationalism has the best evidence in the Bible, and I and I want to show you if, uh, the reasons why. Um, but we don't condemn or say you're not Christian because you're 
structure as Episcopalian or whatever the case may be. That's that's so. This isn't this isn't a condemnation practice. Okay. Um, this is our pursuit of being as biblical as possible. That's what this is. It's our pursuit of being as biblical as possible for the glory of God in Ozarks Bible Church. Okay. So. I want to I want to show you why I think congregationalism, the way that we practice church polity, will be the best way for us to fulfill the purpose of being a church, worship, and the source of uh, the source from which to obtain obtain salvation, because it helps us better to preach the gospel and do and practice the ordinances rightly, which ultimately help us guard doctrine and do discipleship. So the two things, doctrine and discipleship. These are the two most important things the church does, doctrine and discipleship. You guard the thing that gives life, and then you care for those who come in through that. Right? So, again, discipline is for the sake of preserving the soul, keeping the gospel before one another, holding one another accountable. Um, so I want to give us a few illustrations in the scriptures of how it, the, the scriptures point to the congregation being the final authority in those two things, doctrine and discipline, or, or ultimately discipleship. Let's start with doctrine. Galatians 1. I touched on some of these last week, but it was in a, in, in a frenzy. Um, Galatians 1. So the purpose of this is that you'll see that these passages are elevating the authority of the congregation, not necessarily the authority of a pope or a bishop or a pastor or a group of elders. Okay, Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but, Je- but through Jesus Christ, the God and Father who raised him from the dead, and our brothers, and all our brothers who are with me, here, here's what I want you to understand, to the churches of Galatia, to the churches, not to the bishop, not to the presbytery, not to the pastor, not to the elder, but to the churches of Galatia. And just in case we understand... The church, the church are those who have been called together, sanctified in Jesus Christ, saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, per 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly, you is a plural you, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we, meaning an apostle perhaps, but if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Place judgment upon him. Right? That is, Paul's putting that on the backs of the churches, not a single ruling elder or bishop or group of elders. Now, 
Well, let's just finish because he just doubles down. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, just so we can make sure that Paul is clear, look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he is going to put responsibility on the hearers, not just the preachers. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I think. Is that right? Yeah. So he begins in chapter 4 with a charge to Timothy, who is the preacher. He charges him to preach the word. I charge you in the presence of God, verse 1, and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, he's about to shift focus. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves search committees, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit. And I heard a, I heard a, I heard a, um, a pastor say, whether you decide as a member of a church to sit and listen week by week, or if it's because you're paying the man to preach false teaching, you are culpable of what's being said in the pulpit. If you decide to sit under it week by week, you will be held responsible. If you're paying him week by week as a church, you as a church will be held responsible. Don't worry. We understand. He will get what's coming to his too, right? James 3. But at the same time, Paul is very clear. You've got to make judgment upon him. You've got to do something. And Brother Dan pointed that out again this morning in, in Sunday school. How will we know? How will we know? The Word of God. The Word of God. And this, this is why our responsibility as members one of another together is to guard this. And the only way we guard it is if we know it, right? Um, and for the sake of time, you know Jude, right? What does he say? He says, I was going to write to you about our common salvation. And he uses the, the plural y'all. But, I, but he said, instead, I... I I write to you to contend for the faith that was once once for all delivered to the saints. Some are coming in to disrupt and to bring in false teaching. And he tells the plural you. There's no there's no it, it doesn't have an address to who it is, but it is a plural Greek you. And he says you need to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. Um it is our responsibility collectively to do that. Now, I want you to understand, it doesn't just hang for the preacher. But it also means for the children's Sunday school teacher, right? And so we have to understand that to teach in, in the church is to be held accountable, 
right, to be held to a standard. And because we know that's what James says, is that teachers will be held to a stricter um, account. And I think that was one of the things I wanted to help, kind of help us see in our members meetings, that where we can have a, a, an every now and then, you know, I can let you know, hey, we're, this is where we're going in, on Sunday mornings, or Brother Dan can can be talking about, you know, and give an idea uh, of what, what what he's thinking about in um, for Sunday school. Or our Sunday school, our children's Sunday school teachers can come and let us know, hey, this is where the kids have been, and this is what they've been learning, and this is the way that we're going. And so there, and that we're we're reporting uh, those who are teaching who have that responsibility are reporting to the body who are supposed to be guarding the gospel and the right teaching can can make known to the body what's going on in their respective areas of teaching right to hold one another for the sake and here's the thing if in one of those reports they said and we said this and you realize we should not be teaching our kids that you're not only protecting our kids and the congregation, but by holding that teacher accountable, you're now protecting that teacher as well from, from teaching something that they should not be teaching. And so it, it, it's us guarding and protecting one another. That's the doctrinal aspect. That's the doctrine side of it as us as a congregation um, guarding doctrine. Now, the other one is, is sort of the discipleship slash discipline. Two passages. Go through them very quickly. You know them well. Um, but I hope you see that Paul makes it clear on that first one that it is a plural responsibility. That is, it, isn't just, it isn't just on that one elder or bishop or group of elders and bishops. Okay, so let's, since we're this far in the New Testament, let's go towards 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So this is so the first thing was sort of guarding and protecting uh, the doctrine. Now this is guarding and protecting the disciples, the body. First Corinthians five. We're all familiar with this. We've got a rogue uh, young man uh, whose reports of sexual sexual immorality among them. That's not even tolerated among the pagans. Verse one. Verse 2, he calls the church arrogant because they're not doing nothing about it. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? So you wonder exactly what their response was to this situation, but they obviously weren't doing anything. And then he says, let him, at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed among you. And then Paul says in verse 3, for though absent in the body, that would be Paul, he's not there presently, I am present in spirit, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. But he doesn't say, so therefore get rid of him. Notice that? He doesn't say, I made the judgment, so you need to get rid of him. He says in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are, deliver, are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. See, Paul throughout this whole 
the idea that it is one man who's going to, to make a rule and therefore excommunicate somebody. He says, no, when you assemble, I wonder if that word is ecclesia. Give me just a second. Yeah, it, it just means it's another way of saying to assemble and come together. It's not the same word used for church, but it's got the same principle in there. Uh, and then, so, okay, we have to go through all of this because we have to understand the ramifications of turning a blind eye or not doing this very thing. Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. See, man, they're having a weird response to this. This evil that's within them, the sin that's within them. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does leaven do when it gets into bread? What's the whole purpose? It spreads. And it spreads and it goes throughout. And he's saying, he's saying the evil that's among you, if you don't do something about it, even if it's just this one guy and say you're a church of 500, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7 Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Um, go, back, go to 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it is not those inside sorry, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges the outside, and then in contrast, he says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, I don't know if in the, any other translations, but that last section, last sentence is in quotations. I think that the, the assumption is with, was that was in a different letter or communication that he had with him, but I'm not really sure. But he makes it clear that this unre, unrepentant sinner who is who is a member of this body, this local body, he says is purge the evil person from among you. Do that when you assemble, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's their responsibility. It's on their rule. It's part of their duty, their privilege, their responsibilities as members of this local gathering. Okay, one more. Matthew 18. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If you come to me and say, so-and-so and so-and-so is doing something and did this and did that, you know what I'm going to say to you first? Did you talk to him? Right. 
Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, that, that group of people, one or, or two or three, tell it to the church, the assembly, the congregation, right? Not the pope, not the group of elders. Tell it to the congregation. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is where the practice of right of the ordinances rightly would be considered. We we would not we would not want him to partake of the bread and the cup. Until what? Repentance. Repentance. Confession and repentance. Right. So, I mean, that one is pretty straightforward. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the assembled. I'm just going to conclude. Yeah. Um, Conclude with just highlighting three dangers of congregationalism. Three dangers. There's probably more than that, but three that I thought of. Number one, arrogance. Because here, congregational, congregationalism is by default a rule of the majority. Now that might look differently depending on how a church constitutes itself. Right? Some churches say uh, in order to excommunicate someone, it needs to be this percentage of the congregation. Okay? That, that, that can be discussed and figured. But the point being is that Typically, it is the majority rule, okay? Which is, this is the danger that I'm getting at. Number one, arrogance. That the majority says, this is our church. This is how we do things. What does that create? Little pockets, little clicks. Little, getting, get, I've seen it. I've seen pandering within a sanctuary. To where they're this this is the danger of congregationalism, without a doubt. Majority does not equal winner. If you think of yourself as a winner because we got past what you needed to get past or thought we ought to get past, you're missing the point. It's not about winning or losing. Uh, the second danger of congregationalism is fallibility, meaning. Just because a majority is there doesn't mean it's right. right? The scriptures are infallible. They never fail. They never err. A congregation can get it wrong, even if it's 100% across the board. right? Even if they're 100% in agreement, they could still be wrong. They might not be. Majority does not equal pleasing God. Right, we got that. That's the second one, and the third one is that a danger. Third danger of congregationalism is controlling. the The congregation feels that everything has to be figured out among everyone, 
And I think that goes against the practice of overseer, elder, or pastor, whatever you want to call them. Those, the gifts that Christ gave to the church, you know, the list. Um, what's the first one? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher. Those are given to the church for the sake of edifying, building, directing the ministry of the saints, for the building up of the body. And so a church that is, we only do things that the congregation says, is actually acting anti-biblical because they're taking out God-given authority to uh, an elder or pastor or bishop. Here's, here's actually what it... Here's how healthy congregationalism works. The authority of God down through Christ to his body. And when they bring in, through the majority, someone to pastor or shepherd or be an overseer of them, what are they, what are they doing? They're passing down some of that authority. Right? Because what, what does, that, that's what Hebrews 13 says. Obey and submit to your your uh, your elders, your teachers, your whatever he says, because they are they are there to give account for your soul. They are shepherding your soul and to give account of your soul. So when a congregation, in the majority, puts someone in the position of elder, pastor, bishop, or multiple elder, pastor, or bishops, they are they are entrusting authority to that. Man or men, group of men. And so the third one is for the danger of a congregation, congregational church to want to control everything and remove actual biblical authority to the elder pastor. Um, talking about the, the, the members meeting, this is the last thing. Talking about the members meeting and how... I, I was discussing how we could rearrange the format because I want us to make sure that our focus in our meetings is the gospel and discipleship. Like that's the most important thing. Those are, you know, and I think three, the budget is right there because what is the budget? It's funding those things. Right. It's it's us saying we this is how we desire to do ministry. Right. Um, So, okay, that's all I've got. Any questions or thoughts? Uh, What I want to do next week, I think, is to talk a little bit more about that, that back and forth between the congregation and the elder pastor, how those. How the, there are responsibilities on each and how they play together. I, th- I think I'd like to touch on that a little bit more next week and see that. Maybe see it throughout some of the pastoral epistles and whatnot. And then just kind of see see how that goes and flows and see what might come next uh, as far as how we operate. I think uh, you're absolutely right about uh, congreg- the congregation having rule. We look at corruption coming in. It's easier to corrupt one yeah. few than it is the many. Mm-hmm. But there again, anytime uh, a human being is involved, there's 
going to be a certain amount of corruption there. You know, you look back into uh, X, 